Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. Why are we the way we are? Why do we emphasize the things we emphasize? Why do we do the things we do? And the reality is there's, there's, there's reason behind all of it. We try to stay very focused. It's not for no reason we're named focus. We try to keep it really simple. We try to keep it streamlined. We try to hone in on the things that we think are most important for who we are. But it will help you to understand what the core values are behind all that. What are the things that make up who we are? And so that's what we're going to talk about over the next seven weeks. We're going to spend six weeks on the core values, and the seventh week we're going to talk about how that affects our structure or influences our structure and kind of put it all together for you. But by that time, I hope you'll see that it makes sense. What I want to start with when we talk about kind of the foundations of of who we are and why we are who we are uh, is I want to start with what I think really is um, the sort of mission statement of all the churches, of every church, of the Christian church. And I I feel fairly confident saying that because it was Jesus who said so. (laughs) And that's always a good ground to stand on. Uh, It's in fact called by many people the Great Commission because it's the commission that God gave his people before Jesus left to go back to heaven to prepare a place for us, as we talked about last week. This is the commission he left. This is what he said. And this is literally the last words, now I apologize, I, I had all this frame for the, the wall, and then now some of it's not, apparently the TV is uh, not allowing the full uh, window that I have. So bear with me, some of it will run off the edge. But he says this, it says this at the end of the book of Matthew. This is one of the kind of right, right near the end of the book of Matthew itself. It's one of the last things that Jesus said. So the, the context here is that Jesus has died He's been, he's resurrected. And then it says he spent 40 days, according to Paul, he spent 40 days teaching the apostles. And I think that includes the, the, the 12 that he sent out, but I think it also includes any disciples that wanted to be part of this. It's kind of like, this is the leadership training before he heads off, right? He's no longer going to be there. The Holy Spirit is, and we read about that in the book of Acts. We see how the Holy Spirit leads them through the beginning of the church. But Jesus does these 40 days of preparation with them before he leaves. And the last thing he does is this. It says, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Hold that thought for a moment, because that some doubted phrase is so out of place and so bizarre, given the context. But we're going to come back to that in a second. Just just hold that for a moment. It says, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So Jesus teaches them all this stuff, not only the last 40 days, but these are the 12 apostles of the 11, pardon me, the 11 apostles at this moment. And he's, he's been with them for three years. So when he says, teach them everything I've commanded you, there's a lot there. And some of it's really difficult, like the Sermon on the Mount and and really complicated. And some of it's really hard. And so the last thing he says to them is, look, here's, here's the thing. I have all authority on heaven and earth. I think that is, again, a very Hebraic way to simply say all authority, period. There's nothing that escapes that. So I have all authority, he says. 
And now with that authority, I am commissioning you. I am giving you some authority. I am giving you a stewardship of something I want you to do. And it's interesting. You can think of all the things Jesus could have said at this moment. Right? He could have used his authority to have the church do all sorts of things. And it's, it's really important what he chooses to emphasize here. And he says this, go and make disciples of all nations. Now, we can talk a lot about that. I'll just mention this very briefly someday. We, we may talk more about this. In fact, I think this comes up in one of the later weeks of this series. But it's, it's interesting, the phrase, therefore, go and make disciples. Because of a lot of what we've seen, a lot of us have seen in our history and the way we understand this and we think of missionaries, we think of the idea as go and make disciples means travel from here, go to someplace else, and, and, and make a disciple. Now, it's true. We're to make disciples of all nations. So if we only stay within our little circle, that, that's a problem. But it's also important to recognize that this actually, the way this reads, the grammar, I think, would be a little bit more accurate for us if it said, therefore, as you go, make disciples of all nations. The idea being that we're going to go. We're going to be places, Right? You may go somewhere for work. How many, this is not a real question, you don't have to raise your hand, but think to yourself, how many of you have traveled over the course of your life from one place to another? You are now no longer where you were born or where you were raised. It, it is more and more sort of the, the nature of things. The world's gotten so small, it's not unusual. You know, my, my, my daughter works for a company where she's all over the world. You know, she goes to Italy, she goes to Japan. As you go, as you go about your day, as you live, what you should be doing is making disciples wherever you are, in every nation. Some people, I believe, will be called to specifically go and start a mission field, but we've also seen just historically that the most effective missionary movements have always been just as people go, where they already go. <laughs> but this is the goal. This is what he leaves them with. Make disciples of everybody. Make them my disciples, not your disciples. That's where he says, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Whose disciples are they? Not ours. His. And what does it mean to make disciples of them and to baptize them into this community, this church that we talked about last a couple of weeks ago? What does it mean? It means that we're teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Discipleship is sharing the gospel. Because without the gospel, without the understanding of the good news, there is zero interest and motivation and ability for any of us to do anything that God has commanded us. Furthermore, Jesus repeatedly makes the point, as does Paul and God through Paul, that the most basic command that God gives everybody is to trust in Jesus, is to believe him. So this is all about teaching people to look to Jesus as their Lord, to look to Jesus as their master. And this is what I want to say. The name Focus, the reason we just named our church Focus is because I believe that it is way too easy and common for churches to forget what their one job is. Our one job is to make disciples of Jesus. That's it. Our one job is to teach people what it means to follow Jesus as their leader and as their master. It's too easy to get into pointing to other leaders, whether it's ourselves as pastors or politicians or celebrities or, or, or other church celebrities, whatever it may be. It's too easy to start pointing people in other directions. Paul fought against this his entire ministry. He said at one point, I'm really happy that I didn't personally baptize many of you because if I did, you'd be too devoted to me. That's not what I want. Our job is to make disciples. There's a lot of good things that communities can do, right? There's a lot of good things that churches can do. But it's so easy to get 
focused on those things. And the big problem with doing anything as a church other than making disciples is that nobody else is called to make disciples. If we're not doing it, is the hospital going to do it? Is the, are the politicians going to do it? Is the school going to do it? Is, no, nobody else is going to do it. And it's not their failure that they don't. They aren't called to do it. We are. So if we're spending time doing other things, that's our first problem. It means that we're not focused on the thing we should be doing. And the thing that should be being get done is either being done by somebody that hasn't been called to do it and probably less effectively, or it's not being done at all. But there's another problem. When we focus on other things, we're often doing things that other people could be doing. That the other roles may even be better suited to doing. So for us, it all comes back to the idea of discipleship. Now that's a big word, and what does that mean, and what is discipleship? And that's what's gonna, you're gonna find out some of that as we go through our core values, what I understand, what we understand to discipleship to be. But at its bottom line level, our job is to make people who follow Jesus as their leader. And that's our job. And that's what we're focused on. Everything we do goes towards that. Everything we do goes towards that. If you can ask the question, why do we do X, Y, or Z in our church? And if somewhere down the line the answer isn't because it makes disciples, you are well within your rights to come to me and say, I don't understand why we do this. It seems like a waste of time. And maybe I'll explain to you why I think it makes disciples. <laughs> or maybe I'll agree with you and say, you're right, let's not do that anymore. Because that is our goal. That is our focus. Now, think about that phrase. I told you to hold on to that, where it says some of them doubted. That is just fascinating to me that Matthew makes this acknowledgement. Now, it may mean, first of all, it's not entirely clear that only the 11 disciples are here. In other words, it says that the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. It's possible Jesus had other disciples come to that mountain as well. There may be a bunch of people there. But it doesn't say that for sure. Now, that doesn't minimize that this call is for all of us, because if the disciples' call is to make, teach everyone everything they know, then part of that is teaching those people that they're teaching to teach everyone else that they know what to So that passes on no matter what. But think if it is only the 11 disciples. If there's nobody else here at this moment, what an amazing statement it is to throw in here that they see him, they worship him, and some of these 11 doubted. How weird is that? What more evidence do you need? Even if it is more than the 11, these are all people that have seen, by virtue of him standing here on the mountain, that Jesus has come back to life. He died. He came back to life. He spent 40 days teaching them. He walked with them. Paul says later that he gave them over those 40 days many convincing proofs that he was alive, which just makes it, that just makes me laugh anyway. How many of you feel like you have to give convincing proofs you're alive? There might be something wrong with the way you're living your life if you do, but, but it's just by being here, isn't that sort of a convincing proof? <laughs> And Jesus not only was here, which is in and of itself a convincing proof, but he made, gave them many more convincing proofs that he wasn't some kind of weird illusion or ghost or hologram or whatever. I doubt they were thinking about holograms, but we would. So he gives them all these proofs. They've walked with him for three years. They've seen his faithfulness. They've seen the miracles he's done. They've seen that he's resurrected. They've listened to him teach. And yet at this moment, some of them doubted. In the midst of worship, some of them doubted. And you know what I think we're supposed to take from this? Two things. One, it's okay if in the midst of worship some of you doubt. It's all right. It's all right. 
because apparently it is so built into who we are as human beings that even after the most convincing proofs anybody's ever had, some of them doubted. But here's the second thing I think we take from it. This is why it's so important as a community that we're engaged in discipleship. Because if the most mature of us, and we'll just call the apostles the most mature of us for the moment, I think that's fair in this context. If those who have seen the most evidence of it, if those who have given their lives most fully to it, if those who have surrendered everything they have to Jesus can doubt, then anybody can. It's been interesting to me over the last several years as I've watched some of my friends as they've drifted away from churches and community and fellowship, I watch them change convictions that I thought could never change. I had known them for years and years, and those convictions seemed the bedrock to who they were. Now, I don't know who they are, and they don't know who they are, but there does seem to be a connection between this drifting away from the community of discipleship and this doubting. So it's okay to doubt. We want you to doubt in our midst. We want to be a community that is okay with doubt, because apparently Jesus was. And because apparently it's going to happen. So pretending it's not going to happen isn't helpful to anybody. But we also want to be a community that comes together to help you when you doubt. We want to be a community that reminds you of what you've seen and the miracles that God has done and the convincing proofs that God has given us that he is alive in our own lives. I think that is inherently connected discipleship. We'll see that more fully in a few weeks. But this idea that discipleship is teaching us to obey everything we've been commanded is very, very directly linked to the idea that what we're really being taught to do is to trust Jesus as our leader. And we need to remind each other to do that because the world won't. Right? Can you imagine where else would these 11 disciples have gone except up on this mountain with Jesus that would have helped them when they were doubting? Is there another place in Rome they could have gone? Is there another place in the entire world they could have gone that would have been better for them at that moment? Of course not. The best place for them to be in their doubt was worshiping God on that mountain. And in case I wasn't clear about it, when I say it's okay if you doubt, remember that these people who doubted changed the world over the next 10, 20 years because of their faith. So it's okay. It's all right. I think we see a hint here that part of the antidote for doubt, both for us and for others, is to maintain the mission, to stay focused on the one job we have, to teach each other to follow Jesus, to obey Jesus. And I love the ending of this. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. To remember that even as Jesus went back to prepare a place for them, he still reminds them, I'm still with you. And as we talked about a few weeks ago, the church is the dwelling place of God. That's what we're told. Not the building, the people. We are the dwelling place of God. To remember that Jesus is in our midst is part of discipleship. So to that end, we have some core values. This, they're all focused on this idea of discipleship. And we have some core values, which we're going to share over the next six weeks. And I want to tell you three things about these core values. Number one, these are foundational to who we are as a church. We created this church based upon these values. We did not create a church and then later go back and say what's important to us. I know this because I'm the guy that started this. I carefully said what are the things I think need to be part of a church? What are foundational? And we built from the ground up. Right or wrong, they're foundational to who we are. Right? If you end up disagreeing, you'll at least understand why it looks the way it looks. 
because the church was built from the ground up with this focus on discipleship and these core values that we're going to share. Number two, these are expository. By expository, expository means not just that you read scripture well or that you teach a certain way. Expository simply means they explain something. Our core values actually explain to you why we are who we are. Our core values explain to you what's important to us. So these core values, again, and I have to stress this because I have been in organizations and even in churches where our core values had only tangential relationship to what we actually did. That's part of the problem. <laughs> so these are foundational, but they're also expository. They explain why we do things the way we do them. And number three, they are the drivers. They're not only foundational and we built on them, they not only explain who we are now, but they also push us forward. And if we make changes in the future, they will be driven by these core values and no others. And if we don't make changes in the future, that will be driven by these core values and no others. So that's how, that, that's how valuable these core values are. That's how integral they are to who we are. And again, I say that because I know that isn't always the case in organizations. It's easy to lose your way, forget your focus. And then your core values. I, I literally remember having discussions with board members in previous church I'm in where one of us, might have been me, might not have been, but one of us said, this core value, I don't see it in our church. So either we need to change the way we're doing something or we just need to acknowledge it's not truly a core value, which might be okay. It happens. We don't want it to happen with our church. We want these core values to continue to be what drives us forward. We want them to continue to explain who we are and they are the foundation of where we started. So that's how important these core values are as we go over them the next seven weeks. Good? Cool. So the first core value, I want to start with this verse, Proverbs 2, 1 through 5. My son, if you accept my words and store my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, indeed, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and the knowledge of God. There is a call here at the beginning of Proverbs that, that Solomon gives. And he says, listen, my son, he, he frequently speaks about the Proverbs as if he's teaching one of his own children. And perhaps he is. But he says, listen, my son, give everything for wisdom. It's more valuable than gold. It's more valuable than silver. You should be spending your time looking for it as if you were looking for a hidden treasure. My wife and I watch a show called The, the uh, Treasure Curse, Curse of Oak Island, which is about these guys, this, this millionaire and his brother, and his brother persuaded his millionaire brother to buy an island. They literally bought Oak Island, and they've been spending seven years now. We're up to like season seven. Looking for a treasure, they have all these hit codes and maps and it does seem like something happened there they keep finding all sorts of interesting historical things they keep digging but they have invested i don't know how much money but it seems like millions and millions of dollars in looking for this treasure and they have invested so much time and so much energy and ever and, and we're getting weary of it but every year they're like we're going to find it next year and we're like sure you are and now it's to the point where we're pretty convinced that if they found it we'd know about it through the news before it showed up in the season but who knows <laughs> But they're, they're really focused. They're giving everything to this. And that's the call Solomon is giving. It should, you should be looking for wisdom as if it's this important. But here's what's weird. A lot of times we say these kinds of things in church. And here's what, I don't know if it's what you hear, but as I talk to people outside the church, when they hear a verse like this, this is what they hear. 
they do not hear an invitation to come search, search for wisdom. They hear an invitation to come in, sit down, and listen to someone tell them what the truth is. And if they're really noble people, they'll accept it without thinking. That's what they think we're telling them. I'm not going to... I mean, I'll let you decide whether that's our fault or their fault or whose fault it is. But that is the reality. A lot of people think the church is the place where we think if they would come in and simply listen to us, we would give them all the answers. And that's what it means to seek for wisdom is simply go to church and ask the expert. Now, I think part of the reason for that is because that's our culture in some ways, has been for years. It's really shifted a lot. But up until recently, there, there was this idea that everything was through an expert. You go to the expert, you get the answers. Sometimes that's valuable. Sometimes it's not. It all depends on the expertise and the value of the expert. That is not what this verse says, is it? This does not say, my son, my son, come to me. There are other verses where he says, listen to my instructions. That is, that is very true. And he does say here, store up my commands within you. But do you see how the whole point of this verse isn't simply listen to me and I'll tell you what to think and what to believe, but it's seek what you should believe. Look for the wisdom. Put your effort into it. It's all about you working it out really hard, making it your priority, not me feeding it to you. I think outside the church, as I've had conversations with people outside the church, and God has given me the opportunity to have a lot of conversations with unbelievers who tell me very frankly what they think the church is. And as I've had conversations with them about this, I've learned that very few of them see the church as a place where wisdom is loved. Very few of them see the church as a place where deep answers are really sought after. Many of them, right or wrong, see the church as a place where submission and obedience is called for and collective agreement on certain rules is what we have. And we believe that's wisdom. And so when I used to say to them, where do you, do you think the church is the best place to go and really ask the most important questions about life and death and eternity? Because that's what it seems like to me. They would say, absolutely not. And I would say, why not? And they would say, well, the church is not really interested in dealing with deep questions. They just want to give you the pat answers and have agreement. Now, here's what's fascinating. When I go to people in the church and I say, have you ever had really good, deep conversations with people outside the church about life and death and eternity? Have you ever tried? And they say, well, no. And I say, why not? And they say, because they're not really interested in really deep questions. They just want to cover it over with pat answers. So both in the church and out of the church, we look at the other side and we think that they're not interested in the deep questions, but we are. And it's a shame because that looks like where our meeting ground is. <laughs> that looks like that's where we could meet is in the acknowledgement that God is a mystery, that there are huge questions that we need to work through. And I am not saying, obviously, Jesus told us to teach everything that, that, that he commanded us. Obviously, we just went through the foundations of the faith. I believe there are things we can know. But does that mean that people will learn about those things if we encourage them never to ask questions about those things? Did you, do you learn best when you're told to stop thinking or when you're invited to discover? Fact is, we all learn best when we're invited to discover. And when we discover something for ourselves, it means that much more. How many of you have had the experience of reading a scripture a million times and it didn't stick, it didn't mean that much, it sounded fine, and then one day you read that same scripture and it didn't line up with your life. And man, that caused tension. And it caused an issue and it caused a problem. You began to wrestle with it and wrestle with it and wrestle with it until one day God showed you how it matched with your life. And suddenly that verse had a meaning and a, and a resonance with you that it never had before then. 
because now you've discovered what that verse had been saying all along. That's what this verse says. Don't just listen to me, my son, but make it your, your goal to find wisdom, to find truth, to seek it. Let me show you another kind of a, when we think about the fact that we're all called to teach, right? We are called to teach. That's what he said. Teach them everything I've commanded you. That's what he said. But I think it's useful to watch and look at the way Jesus taught. Because the way Jesus taught was that he encouraged people to question and explore what he said. He didn't encourage them to simply listen to what he said and just accept it all the time. He encouraged them to explore it. Even the way he engaged with them always encouraged questions. And I don't think that's because Jesus didn't believe in answers. I think it's because he did believe in answers. I think of, consider this weird moment. This is a weird moment in, in the world of Jesus. The disciples came to Jesus and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? Now, this is interesting because a lot of times we think that parables are illustrations, right? Anecdotes. When I teach a sermon, sometimes I'll give it an illustration. And the purpose of an illustration is to make that clearer is to make the point I'm making simple and clear. So we sometimes think that's what parables are supposed to do. But that's not what Jesus says when they ask him this question. They say, why do you speak to the people in parables? And he doesn't say, because I want to give them an illustration so they'll understand more simply. He says this, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them. I speak in parables to hide from them what you already know. Now, that's a very strange thing for a teacher to say, isn't it? He goes on, whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what they have will be taken from them. That is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Then he says this, for this people's heart has become calloused and they hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. So let's walk through this very confusing, strange answer that Jesus gives to this question. Why do you speak in parables? And he says, because you have the secrets, but they don't. And so I speak in parables so that because maybe then they won't hear because if they did hear, I would turn and heal them. Well, that sounds weird. That sounds like Jesus is being really exclusive here. Like he's saying, you guys get the golden nuggets, but nobody else does. But I don't think that's what he's saying. I think the key is what he says here. This people's hearts have become calloused and they hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Have you ever had an experience with maybe one of your children or a friend of yours, or maybe you yourself have experienced this where you say the same thing over and over to somebody. And at a certain point, you don't even want to say the same thing again, because you know, when you do, they're totally not going to hear it because it's gotten to that place where it's like they close their ears as soon as you start to say it. They close their eyes as soon as you start to show them. Their hearts are not open to what you want to speak to them. I think this is what Jesus is saying is that, look, here's the reason I speak in parables, not because I'm trying to confuse them, but also not because I'm trying to make it simpler for them. Because the reality is, it doesn't matter how simple I make it, their eyes are closed. Their ears are stopped and their hearts are calloused. They don't want to hear the simple answers I give them. So Jesus says, here's why I speak in parables. I speak in parables so that I can get around their closed ears and their closed eyes and their closed hearts. I speak in parables so that they go for a moment go, that's not what I expected him to say. And then they say, wait, what does that even mean? And then Jesus says, then I've got them. <laughs> because they're asking questions. Whereas before, they didn't even want to hear the answers. 
Jesus says, I don't speak in parables to you guys because you already want to hear it. So I can speak plainly. And it's interesting. They ask this question just before he, in fact, explains a parable to them. Because they're already hungry. Jesus speaks in parables to pique the hunger. Jesus speaks in parables to make people, to catch them by surprise and make them think, to make them discover, to have them ask the question, what do I do with that? He tells parables to make people think. People who are willing to open their eyes and ears and hearts can gain greater understanding. Those who already have will have more. If you're open to what Jesus is saying, you'll receive more easily. If you're pushing away what Jesus has and your hearts are already calloused, not because Jesus doesn't want it, but because of where you are, you're likely to get less from what he shares. So Jesus tells the parable, hoping to get around your defenses. There's something about self-discovery which is so important to the way we've been made. It's part of who we are. Think about the way you learn. I, I, do, I used to do a lot of marital counseling, and it was very common that either, this, this, was, this was not gender specific. This happened on both sides. Either the husband or the wife would say of their husband or wife, they would say to me at some point, they, will, they never accept when I have a good idea until they have it themselves. And what I usually say to those people is, you know what? Chances are you're exactly the same way. You just don't know it. <laughs> because most people I've met are that way. Most of us don't just hear a good idea that we don't already suspect is true. That's the other thing we do. We hear an idea we've already accepted is true, and we're like, that's brilliant. We always know when people are brilliant because they say things we were already thinking. But rarely does someone present a brand new idea, and we don't, with some struggle, just go, oh, what a great idea. We either think it was our idea to begin with, acknowledge they're affirming something we already thought, or we wrestle it through and then come to the conclusion that they're right. That's usually how it happens. And the more important the idea, the more likely that is. You see that too? Like, I really don't care. You know, uh, I just, I, I, this is a really silly analogy, but I like pizza. I like almost any pizza. So if you're like, I think we should go to such and such pizza place today, I, I don't care if it's your idea. I'll be like, sure, that sounds good. But the more important the idea is, the more I'm going to have to wrestle with it before I'm going to accept just that you said it. And that's how we are. And that's who we are. That's how we've been made to be. And so Jesus tells in parables to give people a chance for that self-discovery. And so this is core value number one. We seek to make church the best place to discuss the most important questions. The other thing that happens sometimes in churches is we get afraid of the most important questions, right? I mean, questions about whether Jesus really is God and whether salvation really does exist and whether heaven is really a thing and whether hell is eternal torment. These are really complicated questions, but are they not the most important questions? Of course they are. But we get afraid of them. We want to say, well, don't ask those. Those just accept. Let's, let's talk about other questions. But I think church should be the place that we discuss these questions of life and death and eternity and sin and morality and salvation and how does it apply to my life and what does it really mean at this moment for me to follow Jesus? If we can't ask those questions in the church, where on earth are we going to ask them? Nowhere. Nowhere that you can get a reliable opportunity to discuss it and have the answer. We think church should be the place not only to discuss the questions, but the most important questions. The ones that sometimes we run from because they're scary questions. 
the ones we sometimes don't like. Now, just for a moment, and by the way, throughout the course of the series, I never, ever want to come across from a standpoint of we do church right and everybody else does it wrong. We do church the way we do it because of these core values. Other churches do church the way they do it because of their core values or because they haven't thought through their core values, and I'm not going to make a judgment about which is which. But I do want you to think, if this is a core value for us, think about the structure of most churches. Think about the emphasis on Sunday morning. Think about the emphasis on this kind of discipleship, where I teach and you sit quietly and listen. Does that line up with this? Would it make sense for us to emphasize that as our primary mode of church, if this is one of our core values? It wouldn't, would it? Somehow, we have to have a church which really allows people to explore the most important questions. And that doesn't just mean I explore them and then tell you what I've come up with. I do that, but that can't be who we are. That can't be the basis of who we are, or that core value is gone. It's interesting even the way we think about teaching in our culture in America. It's just different, actually, than even the, the early church and the temple had. If you go back and read carefully, some of you may remember the story where Jesus' parents, it's the only story we know about his childhood. We know about his birth, and then we know about one moment when he's 12, which arguably is actually when he first became an adult, but we tend to think of it as a child. And then we have stories about when he's 30, nothing in between. But there's this story when he's 12, and he gets left at the temple. Some of you remember that story? And to be fair to his parents, it's completely understandable. They were in a big community. They had all sorts of people watching out for him. There were lots of family members. They assumed he was in the big caravan with them, and they realized later he wasn't. It says that he was in the temple. And it says that people were amazed at Jesus' understanding and authority at the age of 12. And we think Jesus was teaching, and to a degree he was. But you know what it actually says he was doing? Sitting down and asking questions. They thought of that as teaching. We think of teaching as standing up and making statements. <laughs> he was sitting down and asking questions, and they saw that as a position of authority and wisdom and teaching. Isn't that different? That's different than where we are. So this is our first core value. We seek to make the church the place to discuss the most important questions. Oh, I had a bunch of other slides that disappeared. That's okay. Apparently this is, this is what it is. I would just mention this. Um, just think about other great questioners throughout scripture and how God and how Jesus treats them. I have four that are my favorite. They're such good examples. One is Nicodemus. So Jesus has the conversation with Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to him in the middle of the night and he asks him a question. Pharisees are always asking Jesus questions. We talked about this way at the beginning of the foundation series that some questions are not asked by people who want to know the answer. They're asked by people who want to not know the answer. And they don't want to be changed. And so they ask questions to stall it. Nicodemus seems to really have genuine questions. What, what are you all about, Jesus? And it's fascinating that Jesus doesn't answer Nicodemus he answers Nicodemus only by saying really provocative and confusing things. We, we hear the phrase born again. We sang it in one of our songs tonight. It just rolls off the tongue. But again, it's a really weird phrase. And for the first time it ever been mentioned by Jesus, it, it, we look at Nicodemus and think, why is he so stupid? Jesus says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, how can I go back in my womb and be born again? No, you don't understand. That's the appropriate response to what Jesus said. It's the response Jesus expected. 
Jesus said, you must be born a second time because he wanted Nicodemus to ask him the question, what does that mean? (laughs) Nicodemus was not dumb. He didn't think Jesus meant literally he would have to go through the birth again. But by asking, how can that be? He's getting Jesus to expand. And the whole conversation is Nicodemus asking questions and Jesus provoking Nicodemus to ask more questions. And the conclusion of it isn't that Nicodemus says, got it, I know who you are, I understand it all. The conclusion of that is that Nicodemus goes away pondering. And Nicodemus shows up twice more in the Gospels, and each time we see that he's pondered a little bit further, and he's a little bit further along the journey, until at the very end, he's there at Jesus' tomb. He understands who Jesus is. Habakkuk. Habakkuk is my favorite prophet because he's just so completely not what we think of when we think of prophets. We think of prophets. Prophets are people who stand, they speak fiery and with certainty, right? They're like, this is happening and this is when it's happening. And in fact, if a prophet doesn't speak with certainty, sometimes in our culture we think, well, that must mean they're not a prophet because prophets are always confident and rude. But Habakkuk is the weirdest prophet because it's like Jesus said to you or God said to you as a prophet, hey, you're a prophet, we're going to work on your book now. You know, we've done all these other prophet books. Here's your book. It's coming up. I know this isn't how it works, but think about it this way for a second. We've done all the other books. Here's your moment. We're going to publish your prophetic works What would you like to spend your time on? And Habakkuk says, really? I just have some questions. And the entire prophetic book is Habakkuk asking questions that if you read closely, don't actually ever get answered. Not satisfactorily. They satisfy Habakkuk, but not because the answers are good. (laughs) And they're the kinds of questions that, again, we would wrestle with and do wrestle with. You know what the questions are? They're questions about justice and injustice. They're questions about why is God judging Israel with Babylon when Babylon is wicked and doesn't trust God? And God says, yeah, good question. You know what else is going to happen? After Babylon judges Israel, I'm going to judge Babylon. And Habakkuk's like, this, this makes no sense. This is a really bad system, God. I don't understand what you're doing. He begins to ask God questions like, why is evil even a thing? Why do you allow evil to exist? And then, is it really appropriate for a pure God to use evil people to do good things? Which, by the way, these are all really good questions. <laughs> Aren't they? And Habakkuk gets no reproof for the questions. There's not a moment in there where God is like, man, you're supposed to be a prophet. You're supposed to know things. The whole way along, God is just like, those are really good questions. I love that you're wrestling with it. I love it. I love it. I love it. And at the end of the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk does not have the answers. And it concludes with him saying, God is awesome. Now, figuring out how he got from, you're not making no sense to me, to God is awesome is part of the beauty of the prophecy of Habakkuk. But when you think about it, the fact that the only statement Habakkuk makes is at the very end, and it's God is awesome, is a fascinating prophetic book. How about Job? I love Job. Job, we have this whole story. We know that he's a righteous guy. We know that at the end he gets reproved for his attitude. I think there's no question about that. He gets reproved for his attitude. His attitude is flawed. But he does not get reproved for asking questions. And it's really fascinating to me that the only thing that Job demands throughout the entire book of Job, he doesn't demand that Job be nicer, to, that God be nicer to him. You'd think he would. You'd think he would just be like, just be nice. He doesn't demand it. The only thing he demands is an audience with God. He just says, God, I just want to have a chance to to ask you questions and show you that you're wrong. That's where the attitude thing came in. But you know what's fascinating about it? Even though his attitude was wrong, you know what God gives him at the end of the book? Exactly what he asked for. An audience with God. It's amazing. Here's a guy who's whining and complaining about attitude and asking questions, and God rewards his asking questions. 
with answers. There, I think he actually does give answers that he doesn't give Habakkuk. There's such good answers that Job's like, oh my gosh, I'm going to shut up. I'm dumb. That's how his attitude was fixed. <laughs> but the questions weren't wrong. I love it. I love it. There's so many questioners. And the, my, my fourth one that, that I'll mention tonight is the woman at the well. We have that story where Jesus comes up to the Samaritan woman. They have this long conversation. There's a whole lot of conversation nowadays about the Samaritan woman. There's been, there's been suggestions that she's been painted incorrectly in the past, and that's possible. There's suggestions she's not quite who we thought she was. All that may be. What is really clear about the woman at the well is she does ask Jesus very sophisticated theological questions. And he treats her seriously. I mean, here's Jesus. She's asking sophisticated but mostly wrong questions, right? Like, which mountain should we worship on? And he's like, well, I mean, you should be worshiping on, in, at the temple. You are wrong about that. But, but really, he goes further than that. He rewards her questions, even when they're wrong, with answers that are deeper than his own apostles have received up to this point. Because she dares to ask the questions. Really. We, we should be impressed with the fact that Jesus is talking to her. But we should also be impressed with the fact that she dares to ask him really deep questions. Because when you ask deep questions, you're making yourself vulnerable, aren't you? You're showing what you don't know. <laughs> she was willing to do it. And Jesus rewards her as much as he rewards every, anybody in the entire Gospels. She comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus perhaps before anybody else. Perhaps, depending how you read the story. All right. So this is our core value. We seek to make the church the best place to discuss the most important questions. Most churches believe in the value of small groups but in Focus Church. We are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the Focus Groups. And we believe that you can be part of a Focus Group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com and I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you and we'll see you here again next week.